Pastor Steve, elders here, for putting this conference on. I'm thankful for the opportunity. In my personal uh, interaction with influencers, I went from a, uh, maybe I might say a somewhat neutral person to someone who was increasingly concerned and at times somewhat riled by the language, the the framework, the theology of, of influencers' ministry. Um, having said that, I have some friends and, and brothers in Christ who I know are involved in, in influencers heavily, and they love the Lord. And so I want to speak with some, some measure of grace towards them personally while calling them to a clear understanding of the implications of the ministry and its theology. So what I would like to do is lay out for you some theological tenets of the influencers. I've given you a fairly large set of notes, mostly because it contains a lot of quotes in there from their various books. Um, I, I think one of the concerns I had, in, and it just belabored the process, was that I would not speak out of turn by misrepresenting anyone, where if they were to have been listening or watching online, they would respond by saying, they don't understand, they don't get it, that's not true, that's out of context. I think it's the burden of every preacher who is speaking the truth to make sure that it's actually the truth. Um, and, and that goes for those things that aren't in the Word of God, like evaluating influencers and reading their material. Uh, we've all misspoken or said things we regret, and they don't really represent who we are or how we think in general, but uh, they represent a misunderstanding or a misappropriation of information we have, and they're not really a good reflection of our total thinking. With that in line, let me take you to uh, the notes, um, and let me, just, let me just lay out for you the journey to the inner chamber as a framework for discipleship that's presented in influencers first. So when you read influencers' material, one of the first books, and, and really where you get the idea of journey, it is from the book Journey to the Inner Chamber. It's about a 20-year-old uh, book. Uh, was written in, in an allegorical sense, and, and this man falls into this dream vision. I'm not sure exactly how you want to um, describe that. And he sees, he sees uh, someone go from unbelief to um, full abiding in Christ. And, and you, so you walk through this kind of progression of discipleship uh, according to the Journey to the Inner Chamber book. And you start, and if, you, if you're wondering about this, this is actually their graphic. I think it's something on page six of the notes I gave you. Um, that comes, if you buy the material, that comes in the material. It's that picture. So I, I, will, I will describe the picture for you just so you get a feeling for the theology, and then I'll read some of those quotes that, that strengthen your understanding of what they're actually thinking. If you look at that picture, you'll notice there's kind of a, um, an exterior to a castle that's dead and bizarre. Um, it's kind of this spiritual wasteland that represents the world and unbelievers. And influencers are pictured, uh, you might see that on a white horse with kind of, kind of like a knight picture. He's, he is a, uh, um, a harvester, might be another word you would call him. He is going out into the world to bring people to salvation. So he picks up this refugee in unsaved land. And he brings him to this bridge. The bridge represents Christ. A prayer is whispered in the book. You really don't get good insight into what the prayer is exactly. Um, then he crosses from the world and into the, the realm of the church, let's say, where he is now in that green field outside the castle walls. That, you'll see two little tables there, right, as you enter across the bridge into that castle area. That represents all the bad churches of the world. Um, and, and they're offering... Um, donuts and coffee. At our church, we do that, literally. We offer donuts and coffee. They're doing it spiritually, metaphorically. It's an allegory. So, so they're, offering, they're offering things that tantalize the natural man and keep him spiritually uh, malnourished, unhealthy, and, and thereby unable to be an influencer. Um, the, the book's uh, scans past that because we're watching an influencer on his white horse carry this refugee who's now a learner because he's, he's, he's trusted Christ in that whispered prayer, prayer by the bridge. And he moves into what's called the banquet room. The banquet room is that first major room. It's white and there's this long table there. That table represents feeding on the word of God. 
And on either side, you'll see two small rooms, one with cots in it and one with kind of a weight room in it. Um, and, and the weight room represents trials and hardships in life by which you are strengthened spiritually. Uh, the beds represent rest so you can recover from the rigors of being tested in those trials. And so you have this kind of cyclical process of spiritual growth that's represented in the, um, in the book where you go from reading God's word to proving its truth. Let me just say that again in case you missed it. To proving its truth through experience and trials. And then finding rest and comfort and then doing it again. Now, the, the main protagonist of the book, who's in this spiritual vision and tracing through and watching as one of the influencers is leading a refugee, now learner, into this process of abiding in the inner chamber, he wants to go in the inner chamber to see what's going on, but he is disallowed because he has yet to uh, fully express absolute trust and total abandonment. Those would be the words hung over the door by which you can only enter into this sacred space. And you can kind of see that sacred space in there. Um, there are two chairs for you and Jesus. So it's you and the Lord communing alone. Um, I'm just going to do a drive-by critique here on that point. Um, there is in our country an enamored love of independence that finds very little in common with the New Testament documents. Almost the entire Christian life is to be lived and framed within the context of the local body of Christ where you gather under the leadership of those called by God, appointed through the uh, ministry of the church and its leaders, and thereby you are accountable, you are instructed, and it is through which the Lord does his mission or the Great Commission as we just heard. The independent idea that I just alone commune with the Lord without any social context accountability in the, in the gathered church is just an aberrant idea to the New Testament thinker. Having said that, you only get into that inner chamber after having become a self-feeder. So, so, so I think that's helpful for us to at least understand. It seems that there are at least three requirements to get in. Absolute trust, total abandonment, or, or we might use the word surrender, but be something more familiar to you in your Christian uh, colloquial thinking, that we need to have full surrender or something like that. You'll sometimes hear people preach. And you need to be a self-feeder, someone who has matured to the place where you can rightly divide God's word on your own and are spiritually independent of needing the church's teaching. Then you can abide with Christ. Then you can commune with the Savior. And then having abided with Christ, after that point, then you can express spiritual fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, come as a result of abiding with Christ, which comes as a result of having become a self-feeder. When you think through the, the chain of logic, then most Christians particularly those in churches just serving donuts and coffee, do not have the spiritual fruit of just joy. Because they, they, they can't abide with Christ because they can't get in the inner chamber because they're not self-feeders. The, the, so, so you follow that train of logic then. The call is that having arisen from this place of abiding with Christ, you've now become an influencer. You put on your armor. You go out on your white charger and you go find more refugees. And the process of discipleship then is self-repeating and you bring more people into this place of spiritual growth. Um, that's the framework. Uh, the, the main protagonist in the book is unable to enter that chamber at first despite his being a Christian and wanting to enter the chamber. So it's not enough to want to. You have to labor and you have to come to a place of crisis. Okay, let, let, me, let me walk you through some of the material here. I think part of it is, and part of my concern is this, it's normalizing a Christian life that's pathetic. Okay, so... so for those that are somewhere between the bridge and the sacred room, that inner chamber, everyone in between 
is, is needing some type of help. In fact, here's the way it's framed. The, the main protagonist, page 9 of Journey to the Inner Chamber, I couldn't put a good day's work in. I was always tired. My family tipped out around like I was a wounded dog, ready to bite anyone who came near. I don't think anyone liked me then. Heck, I didn't even like myself. It sounds like that man needs to repent, ask God to forgive him, and go to his family and plead for their kindness and forgiveness as well. He doesn't need simply to learn to be a self-feeder. B, I wanted to give Gabe as much background as possible. I spent some time giving him background on my life struggle before the vision. I told him about my family and the way I had neglected them. I told him about my struggles with uncontrollable habits that I kept secret from the view of my friends and loved ones. I told him of my hypocrisy as a Christian and how I struggled with guilt. See, after many years of going through the motions of trying to live a Christian life, I finally listened to this special message from God. It was a breakthrough for me, for my hearing had been dulled because of my many years of misunderstanding how to come closer to him. Incidentally, then, understanding how to come closer to him is being enlightened by this um, journey to the inner chamber theology, right? You didn't find it in scripture, you need to get this Bible study method. Like many Christians, I was mistaken in thinking the only way to grow closer to God was by being busy with religious activity, doing things good Christians were supposed to do. When I came to understand it as by another way, God's better way, I was compelled to respond for there was a longing deep within my soul that wanted to connect with Christ in a more authentic way. Even though I had attended church from childhood, studied the Bible, had been involved in several diff- different discipleship programs, I never realized this kind of relationship with the king of the universe was possible. I thought like many Christians, if it were possible, surely I would not be included in such an invitation. So then, as we move forward out of that and try to enter the inner chamber, the responses to Christ and the benefits of Christ are removed then from conversion. I mean, I I would assume that like many of you, when we read the New Testament scriptures, we recognize that part of this moment of conversion is, is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And not merely the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. When we come to Christ, we get all of Christ and he indwells us. So, so when you have this, this separation, this divide between this pathetic Christianity in which you are not abiding with Christ, and I, I would at least assume consistently we would say, you're not abiding with him nor he with you. And the Holy Spirit has yet to produce fruit in you and is not indwelling you, at least in that manifold way, whereby he moves you through submission to the Scriptures to express the character of God. That's what fruit of the Spirit is, right? You, you, you begin to manifest Christ's character as the Spirit takes the Word of God and enlivens in you the character of Christ. All of that is kept away. And it's kept away from the person because he doesn't have trust nor submission to the authority of Christ. Because that's what's required to enter the inner chamber. So as you consider that then, responses to the gospel, trust, and submission essentially, are moved from the drawbridge to this inner chamber door. And the benefits that should come to all those who are in Christ are also secreted away in this vault by which you can only enter after you've become a self-feeder. So number two, we pray that you will have a river crossing of sorts and that you will leave a life of doubt and fear and will cross over to a new life of absolute trust in your king. On the other side of the river is a place of intimacy with God as you've never known before. So just rewinding that then, apparently this Christian doesn't trust his king. Point B, you must let go of trying to keep control of your life and partake of the feast in the inner chamber. And what about self-feeding, self-feeding, messenger asked. I see that's the ultimate objective for the believer, I answered. Well, it's not the ultimate objective, but you can't get there without going through this level of growth. You're talking about feast in the inner chamber again, aren't you? I asked. You're learning, he replied. So you can't get in that inner chamber, which is the ultimate objective. Okay, just like another drive-by whack. Your ultimate objective in life is so clearly enunciated in confessions 
and more importantly, the scriptures itself that those confessions try to articulate, the sole duty of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I would think that maybe we can argue, if we're trying to give much grace here, that by communing with Christ in this inner chamber, we are glorifying him. But the way the books frame it and the material presents it, the reason for entering the inner chamber is peace, rest, and an ability to conquer and bring people to Christ. The glory of God is, at best, a footnote. Point C. It's absolutely necessary for God's child to become a self-feeder if he is to become spiritually mature. Let me skip down to point E for sake of time. To trust absolutely is the other requirement for entering the feast of the inner chamber. If abandonment is the act of emptying one's hand of the illusion of control, trust is the act of grasping what the Almighty God has to give back. The word there, give back, assumes you had the right to own it or have it. I mean... Do you have anything that is yours? God, the owner of it all? Trusting absolutely is to trust in total, without reservation. It is the act of grasping with both hands. This is exactly how I would define saving faith. Right? Saving faith is, it's like an anti-work. It is, it is, it is the way in which I cling to Christ and abandon all other things to which I could cling my own goodness, my own efforts, doing the right types of things as ever, however I measure them. Trusting absolutely is to trust without reservations, the act of grasping with both hands, he who is able. It is the act of grasping God's best without trying to keep one hand on another remedy. F, the problem is most Christians have gladly received their redemption but have not ventured deeply into the intimate relationship that our king is inviting us to. They remain just inside the veil and try to keep hold of their world with an iron grip. That's called unrepentance. That's a lack of faith. That person needs to get saved. And if they're a believer who's moved back towards the world, they need to be called to repentance and stiffly rebuked. Number three here, and then I would like to take you to 1 Corinthians. Offering a sensational blessings that are never promised. A, after, after dwelling in the inner chamber, he can discern which human hearts are ready to receive his help. Unless one is filled with the Lord's Spirit, he cannot understand what I'm saying, but the influencer understands, for he partakes regularly at the feast, and this makes him sensitive to refugees' hearts. I'm still waiting for that gift. <laughs> I wish I could discern which human hearts are ready to hear the gospel it's a breathtaking claim. I don't even know what to say. Point B. It was obvious that an amazing supernatural transformation had occurred in Lerner's life, and the feast he had just partaken of had completed its work. This new man now stood strong, confident, and dangerous. He was ready for battle. He walked with a newfound confidence and determination. The Lord wants to use you for greater purpose. Bless your world and and that beyond your understanding. But he cannot do so. I hope you underline things like that. God cannot do that until your defenses are stronger. He wants you to be his hands, his voice, his love to those around you, but you cannot, for you know not. God presented me an example of a man who would be overlooked and obscure in the world as well. By the way, that man's Gabe, if you've read some of the material that he's speaking of. But what is not seen in a man such as this is the hidden power that is within him and the power of the universe that is at his disposal because he resides in the inner chamber. It feels like Star Wars. I'm at a loss. Listen, God is almighty. It is not the power of the universe. One depersonalizing God like that is just horrific. Further, God's power is not at my disposal. It's at his And just that that reversal there to act like somehow I have a channel by which if I'm in the inner chamber, I can use God's power, which apparently is described here as the power of the universe, at my disposal, at my discretion, just makes a tragedy of the grace of prayer, 
of faith and of many other doctrines in the New Testament. Father, I am here to listen to you. I feel your leadership to trust you more, but I'm not really sure how to do this. I feel your delight as I have grown closer to you. I want to grow even closer and become the mind that you want me to be, the one who can serve you best. I realize that I cannot do it on my own. I need you and on me to accomplish this. I don't, I, I, this is straight out of Kindle, so I apologize for the typos. But I also know that I play a part. I need to know what part it is that I can do. Father, lead me this night and the next days to know what steps I need to take next. Then it started to come together. God has been showing me an example through the humble man that sat across me. What supernaturally happens when a man abides with a king, there's a holy influence that speaks louder than words from his life, and this influence impacts those that come into contact with him. It is not limited by economic standing. It is not limited by cultural racial heritage. It is not limited by age or geographic location. In fact, it could sometimes be obscure and hidden away from the mainstream of the world as it was with Gabe. But through God's sovereign control, the world will find such a person and beat a path to his door to find answers for the hole that lives in his heart. A hole that can only be filled with intimacy a Savior wants to fill it with. So let me just stop reading these quotes. I think you get a feeling for what's happening here then. Is, is we have stage one, you're a pathetic Christian if you're not abiding. Stage two, you need to trust God and submit to him and become someone who can read his Bible as a self-feeder. And only then can you enter into this sacred place where you and Jesus are intimate. Having done that then, you now are abiding with Christ. People will be a path to your door. I mean, forget that Romans 3 says no one seeks. They're going to seek you because they want an answer for the needs they have spiritually to fill the hole that's in their soul. Further, you will know who's receptive and ready to hear the gospel because the insight given to you after abiding with Christ. That influencer is pictured as a man who goes in the world and faces temptation and all of these fiery darts of the devil bounce off of his shiny armor and he is unaffected by Satan's schemes. He is effective at evangelism. That apparently is one of the primary fruits of his abiding with Christ as he's able to bring in large harvest. So what are we to do with this? The title of my session here is Do Small Adjustments to the Gospel Matter? I got to tell you, I spent some time trying to understand what a small adjustment is. That's like saying, does a small mistake during brain surgery really matter? I don't know. I mean, if we're talking maybe about the pronunciation of the Lord in the Old Testament and we're wondering if it's Yahweh or Jehovah, that's a small matter. I think with the gospel, though, it is more vital than brain surgery. And even the analogy, analogy may do it injustice. I'm going to read an extended portion of Scripture. I want you to come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 3. Um, all the way through verse 17 of chapter 3. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the fool, foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Let me just frame out the next section and then I'll read it. He's just said God's wisdom is, is on display in the gospel and it beggars 
the spiritual elitists who want certain things and the sophists who are intellectual elitists who want certain things, and it breaks every man down before God, right? And so he's about to tell the Corinthians, just look at you. None of you are elite. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's about to tell them he ministers humbly as well. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my proclamation and my logos, my word, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Now he's about to tell them how this works. How can fools apprehend this incredible gospel? Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age which are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God. It's the foolishness of God, right? Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man ever imagined. This is the gospel. No one ever thought. No one ever created the gospel. No man has thought it up. No man has invented it. No man comes to it out of his own imagination. No man. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the depths of, excuse me, for who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the thing freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit of, well, the spirit of God, but by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural, that means the person without the spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now he's about to suggest to the Corinthians, they are thinking like unbelievers and they need to repent. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, that is those who are dwelt by the Spirit, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Paulus, are you not merely being human? This is a condemning statement to their response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in no way building a category for which we should think of people in a banquet room. Paul would call them to repent for thinking about God with the wisdom of the world. Now we get to the text that I want to consider with you all, verse 5 through verse 17. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. That's Apollos. 
Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as though through, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I just want to briefly work through this text with you all as an evaluation for how we consider gospel and its importance for the church. So how are we to evaluate ministries? How are we to consider them? Well, I just suggest to you that uh, the Holy Spirit tells us right away that everything about the ministry falls under the lordship of God. He would say it something like this. Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Slaves. We are slaves. That's who we are. We are owned. We are under the possession of the Lord. We are not people who are independent agents. We are owned by him, and that's what brings us into unity together. So Paul and Apollos, we share unity because we are the Lord's slaves. That's precisely what it says. Look in verse 5. What are we? We are slaves through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. So stop elevating us. That's the point. Who deserves the glory? Who is the Lord? Who is the sovereign? Who is the master? God is. Stop magnifying the servants who are merely servants. I planted, Apollos watered, just as a a critique of our general culture. Uh, He is saying, I planted a church. He's not saying, I shared the gospel and they didn't respond. And I hope Apollos comes along later and waters and a third party can come along and harvest. He's suggesting here that as a church planter, I initiated a church in Corinth shared the gospel, people believed, but the Lord has moved me on, and now Apollos is coming, and he's carrying on that legacy of gospel proclamation. He's a slave of Christ as well. We are unified in this task because we are all under the ownership of God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Not only does God own the servants, God owns the the growth. It's one of the reasons I think we ought to be skeptical of critiquing ministries on the basis of growth. Right, so when, when someone says to me, man, our ministry must be blessed by God because look how many people are getting saved. I think we have to look at a text like this and caution that evaluation. Likewise, I think we've all heard or felt this. Maybe our church is small or not growing the way we should and we're like, well, you know, we're just being faithful and uh, you know, nothing pushes people away like preaching God's word straight. I think Acts 2 might tell us differently. I would love to have a sermon where I preach and 3,000 souls were saved and baptized. I don't think anyone wants to accuse Peter of giving a soft, easy believism type message that brought converts in who are not actually converts. That's something to compromise in order to see for rapid church growth. But here's the point. God gives growth. Now, we know this because we just read through the text, and in chapter 2, he says, listen, none of you is, is able to apprehend this. This must be done by the grace of God's Spirit. So when he says in chapter 3, God gives a growth, the Corinthians Corinthian should say, oh, I get it. We should not be taking credit or finding worth in who preached to us and whose wisdom we follow, because in fact, We are brought to saving faith only by the ministry of the Spirit. Not only does God give the growth, he suggests to us that the church itself is God's property. For we are God's fellow workers. Again, clearing this up for you, he's not saying we're fellow workers with God. He is reminding them once again, we're God's. Apollos is God's. Paul is God's, and we are together then under God's ownership, Apollos and Paul fellows. The English just kind of, it makes it hard, so maybe you could say it this way. We are fellows together, owned by God. 
or maybe we are, we are fellows together, slaves under God, would be a way to think through what he's trying to communicate there. And you, Corinthians, are God's. You're God's field, and then he transitions God's building because he's going to lead into another metaphor, right? So I think ministry starts with this confidence that this is the work of God. When I understand my role correctly, no matter where I am in the body of Christ, I need to look at my responsibilities as a steward, a slave who's responsible and accountable to God. And this clarifies then as we move forward why it's so important to get the gospel right. Further, if God is the one who gives growth, I should make sure that the means I labor pleases my master and leads to his giving growth. Because growth can be manufactured, in which case it's not God who's giving it. And that's a problem we get to as we look later in this text. So I want to move forward. If you're following in your outline then, Take care because God alone is master is that first section. The second section, take care to preach Christ alone. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He's, he's testifying. And now he says in, in verse 10, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. I, I think to um, clear up any confusion we might have when we first read that text, I don't think he's saying you can't lay a different foundation at all. I think he's saying there's only one legitimate foundation. Because his point is clear, there are other ways to come about ministry and to work it. But there's only one legitimate way to do this, and that is to preach Christ. In fact, he said several times repeatedly, we preach Christ. And him crucified. So here's the essence then of what the church is to be doing if it is to be doing it well. He says, as a wise or skilled architect, I have come into this process of building this majestic work for God's glory as his slave. He has given me this task, right? He says, what are, what are Paul and Apollos? We are servants who do this as the Lord has assigned So how do we do it then if the Lord has called us into this work? We do it by preaching Christ. He tells us what this means. Preaching Christ. Go back just just briefly with me into chapter 1. Verse 24. He's preaching Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, now, I think most of you are probably aware of the challenge that, that the Jews might have with the gospel. That is, the idea that the messianic hope, who is to be this victorious king, this heir who will be better than his father David, the one to whom, as Psalms 2 tells us, is entitled the whole world. Right? right this, this is the promise of the father that he would give his son the whole world as king. And so Jesus comes, and he is meek and lowly. He comes and he, he walks and lives in such a way that he never even has a place to lay his head. He never has his own household. He never lays his head down on his own pillow, so to speak. Right? Isn't that what our Savior says of his, his own ministry? He labors so much so, Mark says, that he couldn't even sleep. He was so busy. This is not a glorious conquering king that they expected Further, he leaves them under the Roman boot. More so than that, he was hung on a tree. And you read the law, that was a sign of God's curse. Now, I trust that all of you know the gospel of God, that you know the word of Christ, that is, Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He was cursed by God. Jews got that right. He received the curse that falls to all those who are sinners so that all those who are justified might receive the benefits of his saving death, his righteous and perfect obedience, that on the basis of the work of Christ, there might be something granted to all those who repent and believe on him, namely eternal life and fellowship with his son forever. 
Right? This, is, this is the gospel. And the Jews look at the gospel and they're horrified that they would have a glorious king who goes out under the damnation of God in their minds. A humble, not kingly man. And how could they ever trust in him? And for the Greeks and the, and the non-Jews to think that God would reverse the way they think about things. To condescend, to go from glory to humility, to go from power to weakness is incomprehensible. And then to die. I mean, in the Greek and Roman culture, you would know famous names like Hercules did not pride themselves on the mortal and weak. And you think about who our God is. He's anything but mortal and weak. And so in order to be our Savior, the glorious, perfect, powerful, unkillable God becomes incarnate. That he might taste of death for your sakes. And the Greek sophist says, that's folly. That's folly. Who could believe that? Paul says, this is the gospel. So you come later into chapter 1. Because of him referring to God, you are what? What does it say there? Please, please pay attention to the text on this one. You are in Christ. Verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. He's looking at the Corinthians. And listen, the Corinthians are so helpful for us on, on many levels. The Corinthians are a train wreck of spiritual tragedy. Right? I mean, they're delighting in the fact that there is so much grace that a man who's sleeping with his father's wife is permitted fellowship with the believers as though that's a sign of love. Calling someone away from sin is a sign of love, not letting them wreck their home and bring great tragedy and more importantly dishonor to their Savior by doing so. That is not love. If you read through the rest of the letters to the Corinthians, you realize they were a church very much like every church. They struggle with sin and sinners. Here we have these people thinking like unbelievers and yet Paul doesn't say something like this. And you who are self-feeders are in Christ. He doesn't say you who are kind of trusting in Christ but need to learn to absolutely trust in Christ are then in Christ. He says you, you motley crew of spiritual wrongness and rightness are still all where? United in Christ. And lest we miss the point then, he says, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He doesn't go on, but he certainly could, couldn't he? And here's the point. Paul looks at the preaching of Christ as holding out the work of God that, that, that just does not compute to the sage of the world. It does not compute with, with the Jewish idea of a conquering king. They only want the second coming. They don't want the first coming. Right? They don't want the, the humble approach of the Messiah. They just want his glorious conquering coming. He says, no, we get the Christ in all of his work. And so we must embrace the humble Messiah who is killed. And when we do that, what do we get? We get him and his blessings. We get the whole Christ, not part of him. Imagine if I were to tell you that I had, assume I'm single, that I had met this wonderful girl who's a fantastic cook. And she was a great cleaner. And she's diligent and clean in and, and how she did life. And I was talking to you about marrying her because I really wanted someone to cook and clean. And I said, well, well do you like her? I'm like, well, 
I have a room in my house you can stay in. You're like, okay, so what you really want is a maid. You really want house help. You don't want a wife. And the, the glorious thing about marriage, and we even say this in our vows, when you marry the person, you get them in sickness and in health. You get them in wealth or poverty. You get the person, and all that comes with them. And you can imagine that counseling session where you say, you know, Mark, you are just not ready to get married. You need to grow up. You hear the apostle is reminding us that the gospel and its benefits is Christ. So then, then you come down, look with me in verse 4 of chapter 2. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. My speech and my message were not implausible words. Let, let, me, let me, I really wish that ESV was a little bit stronger here. Speech is that word keru, which means proclaim or herald. He's not saying, I came to you with words alone. I came to you in method of preaching. So my proclamation and my logos is his point. That is, that is the, the things I said, the content is folly to the world. And the method is folly to the world. He's speaking to both issues here. I think that's helpful for us because when you evaluate preaching, it is kind of interesting. You are all sitting there and you're not debating with me. I'm not looking for raised hands. And in fact, nothing I'm saying, I would hope, is startlingly new. That is, you all can read for yourselves. I am not sitting on a Monday morning trying to figure out what to say from just my own imagination. I am not articulating some cleverly devised message. But I am simply a herald who has been granted or assigned, as chapter 3 says, by my king to do a task, and that is to speak what he has already given to me. And we don't debate it. We listen. So you're going to sit if you are here for this whole day and listen to a couple guys open up God's word and tell you stuff that's already in God's word and you're not going to debate it, you're going to listen to it because it's the word of the king. Who thinks that that's a good strategy? God. And Paul says it's folly to the world. The incredible work of God is this that in so doing, he brings dead people to life. He brings sinners towards Christ-likeness and holiness through the preaching of his word. Not just the message, but the proclamation of that message is how people are saved. So when he says in chapter 3, I built on a foundation and everyone must take care of that word blepo means to, to look at with care, to, to, to evaluate, to watch out so you don't get it wrong. Lest you, lest you build a foundation that's not on Christ and him crucified. Lest you, lest you articulate with wisdom that makes sense to you something different than God's word. And let me just say, if you build a strategy of discipleship in which you cannot coherently show that the method of development is actually derived from the text of Scripture, it is not merely not biblical, it is unbiblical. That is, I do not get the right to divine to decide or create discipleship schemes from my own imagination about the best way to present God's text. God tells me, how things work together in his text. Having said all of that and taking way too much time to say it, I'm going to quickly point out to you why it matters. I want you to look down with me into verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Now keep that in mind. Now come back with me to verse 12. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Okay, so here I am thinking of church work. 
and saying, hey, I must build it on the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? You with me? And then he talks about the nature of the building. It is either gold, silver, precious stones or wood, hay, straw. How do we know which one is actually going to pass this test? It gets lit on fire. I want you to think about this for a minute. What happens when you light wood, hay, straw on fire? It's gone. Generally speaking, what happens when you fire up a diamond? Nothing. It survives. It perseveres. Maybe I say better, it is preserved by God. What happens to gold and silver? Generally, they're even purified in it. Okay, you with me on the metaphor? So we look at this text then. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, that foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Okay, so if we build our church on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is gold, silver, precious stone. It survives. If we don't build on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's wood, hay, stubble. It is burned up. Now, I want you to track with that analogy for a second. What exactly is being built? The what? The ch- What's the church? He's not talking about the drywall. He's talking about people. Now, I want you to consider that analogy. I get to heaven. There's a cadre of people that are going to be tested And some will not survive the testing. They are burned up. I get the gospel wrong. People go to hell. I have a large church full of people who are doomed. It's a terrifying cost of getting the gospel wrong. It ought to chill the heart of everyone called to preach. Sober their study. And build in them a discipline of godliness and scriptural fidelity. We dare not get it wrong. Because when it's revealed, it will be too late to fix. That is not merely the only cost. So take care, because Christ alone saves. We can build churches of people who are not going to survive the test. And so he, he ends, verse 15, he'll be saved as though by fire. It's this picture of the whole church getting consumed up and the pastor dives out his office window and then brushes himself off and is like, hey, I made it. And his whole ministry of proclamation has been a farce, a house of cards burnt to ash. So then he says, it's almost like you can see Paul saying, and you, hold on, hold, hold on, Pastor. Hold on, preachers. Hold on, gospel ministers. Hold on, people who are trying to lead others and disciple them. Verse 16. Do you know that you are God's temple, Corinthians? That's a plural there, right? Do you know that you are all? Let me just go a little southern here. Do you know that y'all are? Right? He's speaking to the, the congregation. Do you know that you are collectively God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Man, that is a precious truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ builds a sacred place where the God who dwells in unapproachable light condescends and ministers with and to his people in their presence. It's one of the reasons why meeting through Zoom is absolutely theologically boneheaded. When we gather The God who could only be approached in the holiest spaces by one priest once a year dwells with us. It is absolutely mind-blowing that God Almighty, the holiest of holy beings in all of thought and mind and imagination, would dwell with me when I'm with you. I mean, usually things get worse when we multiply them. A whole bunch of sinners gathering together under the gospel of Jesus Christ has the privilege of being God's dwelling, his temple. And that is why he then says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, it's sacred. 
And you all are that temple. You see what God is doing? He's standing guardian over his people. And any minister that takes and bends the gospel so that it sits in a nicely packaged set of materials and it can tickle people's ears. It can tell them that they can be a glorious, victorious, dangerous influencer. If we bend the gospel so that we like it, we damn the church and we damn the minister. Right? This, is, this is the law of lex talionis. That is the, the, the law of t- uh, tooth and claw, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You mess with the church, God will mess with you in equal order. Do you hurt the church? God will hurt you in equal order. So he goes for the whole package here. You destroy the church, God will destroy you. So let me just bring it back to influencers and land this plane. When you make the presence of Christ or the ministry of the Spirit subsequent to doing self-feeding, that is rank legalism. It is gospel denial, and it's anathema for anyone who proclaims and teaches it. That's what Galatians tells us to do, right? Anathema, if we or an angel from God himself preaches another gospel. When you move those responses that God says are necessary when we see the glory and the goodness of the gospel in Jesus Christ, namely faith and trust, and we say that somehow we cannot trust and receive those benefits, and then we delay that response to later, we are telling people who are going to hell if they don't trust Christ that they, in fact, are already saved in Christ. That is a false gospel, my friends. And my fear is that when we come to these types of of movements, that what they're doing is they're taking Joe Bakersfield guy, because we all know that Mr. Bakersfield loves beer, his truck, and God. And he says he's a Christian. But he's not. And he comes into his study. And they say, hey, listen, we get it. You, you believe in Jesus. as you, you, you accept that he actually lived and died, but you don't actually trust in him. Nor are you submissive to his lordship. Don't worry about it. We're going to get you there. We're going to teach you to be a self-feeder. You've got to get in the workout room, buddy. You've got to get some rest. And then you've got to come back to the table and eat some more. And we'll get you. And when you do these things, then you get Christ. That that man could walk out and be like, man, I'm not ready to put in the work, but I'm already saved. If that's your brother, and you've been praying for him for years, and you've been pleading with him to repent, to come to Christ, if that's someone you love and care about, you're going to plead with them never to go again. Because here's what matters. God is glorified by displaying his incredible power through the weakness of Christ, through the ministry of the Spirit, as he applies the work of Christ as the word of God is preached and the church is built. So we preach Christ. We plead for the Spirit to save as he applies the work of Christ. And if our church grows by one person in 20 years, praise God for the growth. But we dare not facilitate growth by abandoning the preaching of Christ, by manipulating it, by changing it, by altering it. It will dishonor Christ. It will jeopardize the hearers and it will doom the preacher. This is what matters about getting the gospel right. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. I ask that you would strengthen every minister here who is called by you to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Strengthen them to know the gospel, to proclaim it clearly and boldly, as they ought to speak, that you might glorify your name 
by showing yourself the powerful God who saves the weak and the powerless. You might display your wisdom by calling all of us to abandon reason that we think is reasonable for the all-wise God's reason. Lord, I pray that you might do so and build your church and preserve her till the very end of days so that when we see Jesus and you test the labor of your ministers, that there is an assembly of saints in heaven that are thanking you for saving them through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who might not be in sound churches or in sound studies. Rescue them, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.